From the studios of KPFK Los Angeles, Pacifica Radio, this is host Lois P. Jones. Welcome to Poets Cafe. Internationally acclaimed poet David White makes his home in the Pacific Northwest, where rain and changeable skies remind him of the other, more distant homes from which he comes, Yorkshire, Wales, and Ireland. He travels and lectures throughout the world, bringing his own and others' poetry to large audiences. David holds a degree in marine zoology, honorary degrees from Newman University in Pennsylvania and Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia, and is an associate fellow of the said business school at the University of Oxford. He is the author of eight volumes of poetry and four books of prose, as well as a collection of audio recordings. Welcome, David White. The Bell and the Blackbird. The sound of a bell still reverberating. The sound of a bell still reverberating, or a blackbird, a blackbird calling from a corner of the field, asking you to wake into this life or inviting you deeper into the one that waits, asking you to wake into this life, or inviting you deeper into the one that waits. Either way takes courage. Either way wants you to become nothing but that self that is no self at all. Wants you to walk to the place where you find you already know you'll have to give every last thing away. The approach that is also the meeting itself without any meeting at all. That radiance you have always carried with you as you walk both alone and completely accompanied in friendship by every corner of the world crying, Alleluia. Hmm. Thank you, David. Beautiful. This is your title poem from your latest book, The Bell and the Blackbird. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about the duality of the bell and the blackbird being myself <laughs> in a situation where I have yes. to make a major decision. Yes. And I love this idea that both ways are possible and both ways take courage and that you don't really have necessarily a wrong <laughs> path yes. as you go. Choices, you know, yes. often involve like leaving things behind that are very comfortable to you. And you said that the only choice we have as we mature is how we inhabit our vulnerability, how we become larger and more courageous and more compassionate through our intimacy with disappearance. And so for me, that ties into the split path of the bell and the blackbird and how you can go one way or the other and that you just need to be vulnerable and willing to experience that. Yes, it's an evocation of a meme in Irish poetry actually of a monk standing on the edge of the monastic precinct and hearing the call to prayer, the bell calling. And of course this is a very ancient human dynamic to go deeper but at the same time, he hears the call of the blackbird from outside of the monastic walls. And he, he says to himself, and that's also the most beautiful sound in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and you're left there with this image of this uh, monk in the old Irish church, the pre-Catholic Irish church, 
listening to both at the same time. Mm. And I was writing at my writing desk, actually. My wife came behind me and rang a bell. Oh. For what? For who knows what reason? Perhaps trying to get my attention <laughs> while I was writing. Right. But at the same time, I heard the Dinner red. Time. <laughs> I heard the red-winged blackbird outside in the garden. Mm. It was Easter time, mm-hmm. and uh, springtime. And the red-winged blackbird is the harbinger of spring in the Pacific Northwest. And I immediately was in those monastic shoes uh, from that image, and that's how I wrote the poem. And of course. The real choice is what in the Zen tradition is called the middle way, the the Buddhist way, which sounds really bland. Actually, it's a, an unpoetic description of a very fiery kind of conversational identity that you occupy, because the dynamic that every human being finds themselves in, the dilemma we all find ourselves in, is: should I go deeper? Should I broaden myself? Should I educate myself more? Should I practice? Should I rehearse? Should I learn another language?、Mm-hmm. Should I wait until I speak? Should I get married? Should I move? Ex- yes, All of、yeah. these major decisions that sometimes take you out of. And that's the. But it's, it's、yeah. the call to depth. It's、yes. the. I mean, looking at it most generously, it's the call to depth that every human being feels. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have this call from outside of the precinct, which is. The blackbird announcing the world just as it is, yeah, just as you are and just as it is,、yeah? and the understanding in this poem and in the inherited image out of the Irish tradition is that we don't get to choose. Actually,、mm. we're at our most courageous when we're the conversation between not being ready and being ready.、Mm. We're never fully ready, and you have to be ready at the same time. So,、uh, yes, you have to educate yourself. Yes, you have to deepen your understanding, and you're called by the world right now, and you don't get to choose between the two.、Uh, so it's what I would call a, a more conversational identity,、mm-hmm. and I do think that we're constantly trying to choose too early in most maturing sets of circumstances. You know that we don't let things mature enough or grow enough until. The solution announces itself. We're constantly saying, "No, I'm going for black instead of white." You know, "No, I'm going left instead of right." It's you know? very real to me. And、uh, we actually have to take that radical path that holds both together.、Yeah. And, and we're so distracted by all these things that don't allow these things to come into fruition.、Mm-hmm. Sometimes, I mean,、yes. in normal life, and so you can't. Really have that undercurrent to process so those big decisions. So poetry is one way of stepping down onto that ground, onto that foundation. Yes,、know? to start close in,、and、very just, close in in the physical body. I mean, poetry is written in and from the breath in the body on the ground. Yeah,、mm-hmm. and it's an invitation to actually、uh, what's called in the old theological traditions, you know, to incarnate in this world. And one of the reasons we don't incarnate is because this world is、uh, mediated through conversations, one half of which are through loss and disappearance.、Yeah. Half of any real conversation is mediated through loss and disappearance. And so we we say,、uh, please God, there must be another alternative <laughs> life. It's,、uh, I don't want loss. I don't want disappearance. I don't want hurt. I don't want vulnerability. So we're constantly abstracting ourselves, our bodies, and our language、mm-hmm. in order to create an ersatz, second life. You know.、Mm-hmm. So I I do feel poetry is the invitation back into the body, back into the conversation with 
something other than yourself also. Yes. That body in conversation with the body of the world or with another person. There's another aspect of the poem also, which seemed part of the Zen tradition to me, the idea of the kind of nothing that goes in either direction. So it's the spirit in their essence. So they will go whichever choice they make. The ideal is to be who they are in that in that journey. Yes, it's a tricky understanding in the Zen tradition. You know, the nothing is actually the real something. <laughs> <laughs> right. I remember being in a horse manger at, at 10,000 feet in an obscure part of the Himalayas once, dying from amoebic dysentery, and I was three days in this horse manger because the family didn't know where to put me, uh, covered in straw, hallucinating. But I had this incredible experience on the third day of actually feeling that I was about to die, and I could feel my whole physical system mm. atomizing and parting and starting to flow on. I was sure I was going to go. And I had this astonishing experience of being a part of the whole moving tidal ecosystem of water around me, like the clouds up Beautiful. in the Himalayan sky, the snow falling on the mountains uh, on Annapurna and Dawlagiri above me, the glaciers, you know, the tributaries into the river, and then the river itself, and then the river going off into the Ganges below, and then the sea beyond. And I was the whole cycle. And I realized that this name, this David White, you know, was mm-hmm. really just like the name we'd given to the river. It was the Marciandi River in that valley. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it, you're, you're looking at something that's already gone past in a way. Yes. And I was just like that river. I was this this set of elements that had come together, and they were about to go out into the great Ganges and the great ocean mm-hmm. and separate, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just suddenly had this amazing moment of hilarity about this whole David White project, you know, mm-hmm. that it, <laughs> it took enormous amounts of energy of keeping this show on the road and actually that you were part of this astonishing coming together and then parting. Yeah. I sat up and let out this gunshot of a laugh uh-huh. in a kind of... A moment of a temporary moment of enlightenment <laughs> and the whole family ran out of the house to see what was going on and there I was raving and laughing <laughs> cov- covered in straw you know yeah. but Murphy's law that was the moment I started to get better again <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and, here, and here you are and I took on the whole David White project <laughs> oh, that's funny that reminds me I don't know if you've read it yes. or not but there's a beautiful poem an Ars Poetica by Borges and where he talks about how our faces become water, how we disappear again. Oh, it's just beautiful. I'll I'll send it to you. But I love this idea of the being present in the world and then the desire to be kind of not in the world in some ways. And that comes up also in your collection. Um, There's a particular poem called Cleave, if you'd like to read that. Yes, I do uh, feel that one of the... You know, one of the invitations into the body, into this life, is into every part of it, including the parts that we normally look at in negative and pejorative ways, you know, such as we're constantly disliking our fears and our reluctances, and and yet we're half reluctance, you know. And this poem looks at the way we don't want to have the conversation because it's actually part of our birthright experience. You know, when a child is first born, it's an absolute trauma for it to breathe. 
until it came out into the air, it was taken care of fully by its mother. You know? Yes. It was given shelter, it was given warmth, it was given oxygen you know, through being absolutely connected to the mother. So birth is an absolute trauma for the child and was for, for every one of us. So this looks at the way that that is actually part of our birthright experience and that self-knowledge is not only finding out what your powers and virtues are in the world, but also where you don't want to have the conversation, <laughs> where, where you're afraid of it all, yeah. Cleave. Oh, and the word cleave I've always loved because it means both to split apart and to bring together. In the old medieval Christian marriage ceremony in, in England, yeah, the couple were said to cleave together. Mm-hmm. Uh, cleave. To hold together and to split apart at one and the same time to hold together and to split apart at one and the same time, like the shock of being born, breathing in this world while lamenting for the one we've left. No one needs to tell us we are already on our onward way. No one has to remind us of our everyday and intimate embrace with disappearance. We were born saying goodbye to what we love. We were born in a beautifully strange reluctance to be here. We were born in a strangely beautiful reluctance to be here. Not quite ready to breathe in this new world. We are here and we are almost not. We are present while still not wanting to admit we have arrived. We are present while still not wanting to admit we have arrived. Not quite arrived in our minds, yet always arriving in the body, always growing older while trying to grow younger, always in the act of catching up, of saying hello or saying goodbye, finding strangely in each new and imagined future the still-lived memory of our previous precious life. Mm. Mm. Gorgeous. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Poets Cafe. We're with our esteemed guest, David White. So happy to have him in the cafe. And we're talking about his beautiful book, The Bell and the Blackbird. That's David White, W-H-Y-T-E. Your life is so rich with interaction, uh, people all over the world. You bring your knowledge, your poetry, your understanding of things to others in the corporate world and also just the idea that you can be a poet in the world is a phenomenal thing for all the poets that are listening. Uh, It's hard to commit to that and say, this is my life and this is my purpose. I mean, of course, Rilke did it. And there's very few that have and can and make the kind of impact you have on the world. Yes, although, um, I mean, we're all made so differently. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's many a poet now writing in a garret somewhere who none of us have heard of, who centuries from now will be one of the iconic figures of our age. And there are some poets who are shy of social interaction. That's I just happen to be made, you know, it's probably my Yorkshire uh, a practical down-to-earth inheritance combined with the lyricism of my Irish mother. You know? <laughs> and uh, I grew up in Yorkshire of an Irish mother with two two linguistic rivers joining together, you know, tributaries joining in that, in that house in the hills of Yorkshire. And they were completely different linguistic inheritances, you know, and completely different ways of looking at the world. But I remember quite early on, 
thinking that I wasn't supposed to choose between them and mm. and that I was supposed to hold both. I'm made to travel, you know, my physical body recovers really quickly. I'm made mm -hmm. to speak. I have a voice with which I can speak. Uh, not all poets have a have a good reading voice. Yeah. Some poets, it's better if other people read them, you know. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this life is one that every poet should try to have. But certainly there's more possibility than most poets know in taking your work into the world. If you can build and deepen the narrative around your poetry, for me it's it's really illustrating the conversational thresholds that people stand on on a daily basis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My poetry in a way when I'm in the organizational world, I'm looking at the way you deepen the narrative around working together. Yeah. Yes. When I'm in the theological world, I'm looking at the way you deepen the narrative with the mystery of the divine, you know, what lies over the horizon and what lies inside you at the same time. Mm -hmm. When I'm in uh, the literate world, if I'm at a poetry festival in Wales or in Oxford, or, then I'm, uh, I'm looking at our inheritance, you know, the inheritance of poetry. I love, I love literary biography. I love the lives of poets. I have lots of other poets memorized from times past. That's know. fantastic. Mm. What do you think about committing that to memory? Is that something that takes on its own life once it's in you? Is it, It's different when it's yes. like you're reading on the page. Yes, and when you're looking people in the eyes you know, on stage or yes. in a, a gathering, it makes all the difference. And you're more keyed in to exactly where you should repeat a line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do believe in repetition because that's how, how we actually read poetry on the page especially the first time. You never read a poem first time from top to bottom. You always circle mm -hmm. and say, oh, my God, what was that? If it's a good poem, that yes. is. <laughs> if it's a bad <laughs> poem, you just go straight to the bottom and say, thank you very much. But, but a good poem, you say, I didn't quite understand that. And you go back and you say, oh, my God, you know. And then you're ready to take a step deeper. But it's, a, it's just a, a microcosm of the way that we actually speak when we're on our emotional edge with others. You know? mm -hmm. If you're delivering poignant news to someone, the news of someone's, of a close friend's death or a loved one's death, you always repeat yourself. You always say the same thing in three different ways. You always leave silence, yeah, and you wait to see if the other person has heard you. You know, that's the silence, really. And only then do you do you say the next thing. Yeah. So this this is all uh, facilitated by memorization. I want to speak a yes. moment to silence, because one of the wonderful moments of the experience at the event was how you held silence. Um, mm. You could recite a poem or talk about a particular subject, and then you'd be quiet, and everybody in the audience was with you in that silence. It felt very rich. Mm. And uh, I just appreciate that you can navigate that and feel comfortable with it. Yes. And I would put a lot, lot more silence into the reading here on air, except everyone, <laughs> everyone driving along would switch off the radio. So it doesn't quite, uh, uh, um, doesn't quite work on, uh, on air. But uh, no, that's where I feel everything is happening, really, in the room. Everything is happening. Because I work extemporaneously. It's where the audience is actually inviting you to go next, where the silence is deepest. That's where you, that's where you follow. Perfect. That's where people are saying. That's one of the 
central draws that I had to you in the way you perceive things and the way you take things in mm. and you're in your work as also uh, your connection with Rilke. Mm. And there's a particular poem which I found that you translated which kind of speaks to mm -hmm. this interstices, you know, this yes. place between the light and this other darkness, which yes. isn't a bad darkness. We're drawn to it somehow. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the one, you darkness from which I come. Du dunkelheit aus yes. der ich stamme. Ich liebe dich mehr als die Flamme. The rhythm is just incredible. It's this invitational rhythm inviting you into the darkness. Mm -hmm. And Rilke in that poem is saying, you know, you can be out in the wilderness uh, on a moonless night when it's completely pitch black looking at this immensity. But if there's even one pinpoint of light, you will take the reference of the whole sky from that single pinpoint. So Rilke invites you into this beautiful question, what would it be like if you didn't take your reference from that point of light, from that star or from that campfire? You know? What if you actually took your reference from this immensity of darkness around you? And uh, you darkness from which I come. Mm -hmm. uh, I love you more than all the fires that fence out the world. Yeah. For the fire makes yeah. a circle for everyone so that no one sees you anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And then it's really powerful, you know, but the darkness holds it all, the fire and the flame and the images of animals and everything. And and then the German is really difficult to translate because in, in German he says, uh, and this can sein eine große Kraft rührt sich in meiner Nachbarschaft, he says. And it could be that a great power is breaking into my neighborhood, is the German. You know? <laughs> And that just doesn't translate. Right. But it's it. What he's looking at uh, is this fiercely physical sense of community in German communities, where everyone's looking at every what everyone's doing, and everyone's oh, following the rules. Wow. And oh, yeah, so it's this body it, and uh, this physical body. I, I was in Germany for a while, and uh, you do feel part of the physical body of the neighborhood, you mm -hmm. know? and everyone is policing everyone else in a very subtle way. Mm -hmm. So this breaking into the neighborhood, it's like someone's breaking into the immune system of your body. No wonder why he wanted to be alone. <laughs> yeah, so I, I translated that as mm. literally as uh, and it is possible that a great power is breaking into my body. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I have faith in the night. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but the German is, is very, very powerful and, and almost impossible to translate at the end where he says and es kann sein eine große Kraft rührt sich in meiner Nachbarschaft. Ich glaube an Nächte. Yeah. And I believe in nights, yeah. I mm -hmm. believe in nights. Mm -hmm. And I think that navigating the night is something that we can be drawn to as spiritual beings. Um, I don't know, myself, I find myself at night uh, looking at the silhouette of the mountain or the filigree mm -hmm. of the trees mm -hmm. or birds uh, against the darkness. And um, there's some part of me that, that lives there too. Yes. And the invitation is also into your fears of the dark. Mm -hmm. We have natural inherited evolutionary needs to be afraid of the dark. You know? So when we love the dark, we actually have to admit all the ways that we're afraid of it at the same time. And, I, and so I think Rilke is looking at the night as a, a way that brings you fully into your body because vulnerability is not a choice for any human being, mm -hmm. whether you're only awake in the daylight hours or not, you know. Right. Vulnerability is not a choice. Yeah. Um, we're open to the world in ways that we find quite disturbing and quite difficult, you know. 
caring for a child who's sick, uh, caring for your parent who's dying, uh, caring for your friends who are who are um, uh, exhibiting behaviours which are self-destructive, which you can do nothing about. Uh. Mm. So these are constant vulnerabilities that we have, and you're healthy until the day you're not, no right. matter how healthy you are. Mm-hmm. So to live fully uh, to see vulnerability not as a weakness but as actually a faculty for understanding yes what's about to happen and who you're about to become and that's uh, well conveyed in your book the bell and the blackbird if you've just tuned in we're listening to our wonderful guest david white i'm host lois p jones and we're on poets cafe and there's a lot here that makes me want to be courageous Yes, and to be decisive, too, in some ways, even yes. though sometimes that's that's difficult. Yeah. I think that people need more courage now than ever because the world can feel oppressive. You know, you're giving people tools through poetry, and poetry has that permeating power for change as well. David... It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. I wonder if you would take us out with stone. Stone, yeah. This is about a carved face on a mountainside in County Clare overlooking Galway Bay. A face I had a conversation with for many, many years, uh, which was an invitation into, into vulnerability in a way. Stone. It's an ancient carved face, yeah. A woman's face. The face in the stone is a mirror looking into you. The face in the stone is a mirror looking into you. You have gazed at the moving waters. You have seen the slow light above Loch Aina. Beneath you, streams have flowed and rivers of earth have moved beneath your feet. But you have never looked into the immovability of stone like this. The way it holds you gives you not a way forward but a doorway in, gives you not a way forward, but a doorway in, staunches your need to leave, becomes faithful by going nowhere, becomes faithful by going nowhere, something that wants you to stay here and look back, be weathered by what comes to you, like the way you too have come from so far away to be here, once reluctant and now as solid and as here, and as willing to be touched as everything you have found. Beautiful. This is host Lois P. Jones, and our guest has been David White. The music you hear is The Bell and the Blackbird by Owen and Molly Sullivan from their CD, Fields of Grace. Thanks to our producer, Melina Bond. Look for us on the Poets Cafe fan page on Facebook. You've been listening to Poets Cafe on Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond.